We are in Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And uh, let's start reading from verse 1. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision to those who are not of the circumcision, but who also in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Okay, so looking back at verse 1, chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? So what he's doing now is he is going to continue on this argument that we are justified by faith and not by works. And he is really going to push this issue. And you've, you may think, well, you know, that, that was a problem back then, not really a problem for me. You're wrong. All right? It is a problem for us. We constantly feel as if we somehow need to justify ourselves and gain approval with God because of our works. And God has flipped the whole thing around. You can't gain approval because of your works. You are justified through faith. So he says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh... So he calls him his forefather according to the flesh meaning that that uh, uh, Paul was a Jew and he is descended from Abraham. He is his forefather according to the flesh because he's about to contrast this, that you can have a forefather according to the flesh and then there's going to be a, for, a forefather according to the spirit, according to the faith that Abraham had. He says, what has he found? And he makes reference to Abraham because he very much believes that Abraham existed and Abraham was a real person and Abraham said the things that are written in the Bible that this wasn't just written by a bunch of rabbis later on he makes reference to Abraham because Abraham was a real individual who had a real relationship with God if it were not so the Bible would have been written differently they would not have said it in the New Testament then he goes on he says for if Abraham was justified by works he has something to boast about but not before God. 
So if Abraham really were justified by works, that'd be something to boast about. Because nobody can be justified by works unless they fulfill everything, all the commandments of God. And once the Mosaic law came 400 years later, then then he, he would have to have fulfilled that according to the Mosaic law. But he lived before the law. Could he have even filled it according to the laws that were given at that time? And the answer was no. But even if he did, he'd have something to boast about, but not before God. Well, why not before God? Why couldn't he say, well, Lord, yep, I did it. I fulfilled everything I'm supposed to fulfill. I'm okay. Nope, he couldn't do that. He couldn't do it. And the reason is because God made everything anyway. God made everything anyway. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 66, Isaiah chapter chapter 66, verse 1 and 2, it says, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. So he says, I've made everything anyway. Everything. Everything has come into being through me. You think you've accomplished something? No. And let me, let me take it a little bit further. You've accomplished something, have you? Okay. How about every breath you take is the grace of God? Every breath you take. You say, well, how can that be? Well, it's, it's airs all around. Okay. So let me ask you this. How did you design the hemoglobin, the iron that's sitting in the middle of a porphyrin ring that could pick up a molecule of oxygen in your lungs? and carry that to some cell starving for oxygen, where it drops off that oxygen and then detoxifies the cell by pulling out carbon dioxide and carrying that back to your lung. Did you design that? Did you? No, you didn't. You didn't design that. God did. God did that. God did everything. Oh, you think you can see. Well, how, how did you design your eyes? Tell me about that. Did you design your eyes such that photons would go in and hit a molecule, such as a vitamin A derivative, such that it goes from a trans configuration to a cis configuration? And that configuration then send, activate an electronic signal that goes down your optic nerve to your brain and then start translating that electrical signal into an image? Did you do that? Tell me how you designed that. Do you see, absolutely everything we have is because of the grace of God. If he fulfilled something based upon his works, he'd have something to boast of, maybe to people, but not to God. That's what he's saying. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. I mean, none of us can boast to God that we've done anything. Everything within us, every thought within us, every brain action, every ability for there to be an electronic signal that goes into protein synthesis and then hardwired interconnect patterns in our brain to give us long-term memory. Every one of those actions is because of God. Everything is because of God. Everything we have is because of Him. Every breath we take, every photon that, that comes into our eyes is because of Him. Everything we hear is because of Him. We have these little cilia, these little hairs in our ears that vibrate based on pressure from air pushing against them. 
And there's a rod in the ear that vibrates, and that rod has a different modulus, a different stiffness as it goes along that rod. If it didn't have that, we wouldn't be able to hear these different tones. Tell me, did you design that? Tell me, did you place it in your ear like that? Where did that come from? Everything we're able to hear is because of the grace of God. Everything is because of His hand. We, ha- we might have something to boast about before people, but not before God. God has done everything anyway. Verse 3, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Oh, hear this. This is a beautiful line. The beginning of verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Just let that sink in a minute. What does the scripture say? Paul makes reference to the Bible. He's making reference to the Old Testament. The New Testament had not yet been written. In fact, he's writing it at this moment as he's writing the book of Romans. What does the scripture say? Drive that home right into your spirit. What does the scripture say? We would avoid so many problems in our lives if we would just do what the scriptures say. What does the scripture say? That's what it's saying. What does the scripture, he's referring to a particular verse, what does the scripture say? We say, what do these scriptures say when we're referring to what does the Bible say? There are so many things. So for example, there is a lot of instruction on divorce. You want to get divorced? Just be careful before you get married because once you're married, the terms on divorce are pretty strict. If you're going to do what the scriptures say, it's really pretty strict. It's not, well, you know, we just don't love each other anymore and, uh, you know, it's amicable. We, 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 you know, we agree to disagree and we'll just part. Uh Uh-uh. You want to walk with God? That's not allowed. There are terms for divorce and it's not that. And then, once you're divorced, you think, well, I'll just marry somebody else. No. No. What does the Bible say? It says that, it says that, uh, um, let her remain unmarried or let her be reconciled to her husband. Two choices. If you are divorced, you remain divorced or you be reconciled one to the other. That's it. You don't get another shot at this. You don't get another individual. Unless that first spouse of yours is dead. How do I know? Because the Bible says so. What do the scriptures say? What do the scriptures say? We would avoid all sorts of problems if we would look at that first part of verse 3 and say, What do the scriptures say? It's right there. There are so many different things in the scripture. You say, are we under the 613 commandments of Moses? We're not under a single one of them. None. None of the 613 commandments. Unless they have also been brought into the New Testament, into the teaching in the epistles. Unless they've been brought into the... Our instruction comes from from the epistles, from what uh, what, what the apostles have written in the scriptures. That's where our instruction comes from. We have at least 150 commandments in the New Testament. It depends on how you count. You can count 
hundreds more, depending on how you count, but at least 150 commandments in the New Testament that can keep us quite busy. <clears throat> All right? That's 613. Of the 613, did you know the Ten Commandments are all embodied in New Testament commandments except for one? And that's the commandment on the Sabbath day. The commandments that revolve around the Sabbath day. But nine of the other ten are embodied in New Testament commandments. And that's why we are to follow them. So if you want to take off on a Monday rather than on a Saturday, that's fine for you. But but, uh, by the law of Moses... The Sabbath was from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. You say, well, I, I just celebrated on, on, I just observed this on Sunday, but I still obey the Ten Commandments. No, you don't. <clears throat> Unless you go from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, you are not obeying the Sabbath. It was the last day of the week, not the first day of the week. You can't switch it around. You can't switch. We are under the New Testament commandments, and we have plenty of them. What do the Scriptures say? Let that be your common Response. You're faced with a situation. What do the scriptures say? Oh, I would have saved so much trouble in my life if I were quicker to say, what do the scriptures say? How do I handle this situation? And that's what Paul does. What does the scripture say? Let's look at it. So he quotes verbatim, verbatim, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. Oh, that we would believe God. Oh, that we would just believe what God told us. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed God and that's what gave him credit as righteousness. What was told to him? Well, it started to be, he started to be instructed in, in Genesis chapter 12. God told him he, he, that his offspring, that he would be a blessing, they'd be a blessing to the world. There was a promise of the land initially, not to him, but to his descendants. And then in, in Genesis chapter 13 and 14, it started to translate into the blessing that was going to come to him as well, not just his descendants. He gave him the promise of a son. And in Genesis chapter 15, he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Nothing of he did this work or did that work and it was credited to him. No, he believed God. Oh, that we would believe God. That we would believe what the word of God says. This word is absolutely true. Let that be driven home to you. This word is absolutely true. It is so true. Everything about this word is true. And when you take this word and you take it as true, so much comes, so much comes out of this when we take it as being true. I want to turn back to Isaiah chapter 66, that beautiful book of Isaiah, which is so prophetic. The last book, the last chapter in that book is Isaiah 66. And we read verse 1. The beginning of verse 2 is Isaiah 66, verse 2. For my hand made all these things, thus all things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look. To this one I will look? Who will you look for, Lord? And he says, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. I'm going to look to the person who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. In other words, believes it so much that there is a trembling. 
His word says it. We have to do it. His word says it. We have to do it. I look to the one who trembles at my word. And lest we think, oh well, um, it's not that important. All right, just move on down in Isaiah 66 to verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. He is speaking now specifically to those who tremble at his word. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you, who exclude you for my name's sake, have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But they will be put to shame. You say, what on earth does that mean? Oh, that means so much to me. It means so much to me. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you, who exclude you for my name's sake, have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. They're persecuting you. And they're saying, yeah, where's your joy? And God says, I'm going to put them to shame. Those who exclude you. As a Jew who loves Jesus, there are certainly people within my camp that... that uh, um, that don't like me and exclude me for... He says, your brothers who hate you who and exclude you for my name's sake. Because of the name of the Lord Jesus, there is exclusion. This name that we love so much, some people hate that name. I'm telling you, some people hate that name. And I know a lot of people who hate that name. And he says, they'll be put to shame. They'll be put to shame. But this is to the one who trembles at my word. Oh, that we would be like Abraham and believe God, believe his word. And then it says that, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That we would believe his word, that we would believe God, believe him. In other words, if I believe God, if I just simply rest upon the truth of his word, that's going to yield righteousness. In God's eyes, God looks at that as righteousness. If I simply believe, if I simply believe his word, that's credited to me as righteousness. He says, and Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. I'm going to have the credit of righteousness if I simply believe him. You know, it is so hard for people to get this through their mind, just to trust and believe His Word. That if I follow this Word, it's going to go well for me. This is what I'm talking about. It's it's scary. You know, sometimes to believe His Word, to really trust that He's going to come through, it's not an easy thing. God said, have faith. My Word is true. It will be fulfilled. Verse 5. Verse 4 of, of chapter 4 of Romans. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but is what's due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. The one who does not work, it says his faith is credited to him as righteousness. The faith is credited as righteousness to the one who does not work. But I want to look key in on one little part there. But to the one who does not work, 
but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Why did Paul have to insert who justifies the ungodly? It could well have been written, but to the one who does not work but believes in him, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. But he inserted that little bit. Believes in him who justifies the ungodly. We believe in him who justifies the ungodly. That if you look in in chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here it says God justifies the ungodly. You know what I like about that? That tells me that this Bible is for me. This word is for me. I love this word. I love this book. I love the stories. I love the analogies. I love every word of this book. Because it speaks to me. Because God justifies the ungodly. What we have, what we have is a faith for the ungodly. If you are godly, this faith is not for you. Go get your religion somewhere else. This is a faith for the ungodly. And I say, Lord, there's hope for me. Okay, there is hope for me. My thoughts condemn me every day. My thoughts condemn me. My words condemn me every day. My actions condemn me. And if, perchance, I go an hour without my thoughts, without my words or my actions condemning me, my thoughts have condemned me numerous times in that one hour. It says we are to believe in Him who justifies the ungodly. The ungodly. That is a faith. This is a faith for the ungodly. Oftentimes, when I'm sharing the gospel with somebody, they will think they're pretty good. They're pretty good. And nothing is happening as I'm sharing the gospel. And I have to back up. And I have to show them how they are sinners. That's exactly what happened to me. When I read this verse in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, I turned to the young man who had me read this verse and I said, I'm not a sinner. I'm not a sinner because I thought you had to kill somebody or rob a bank to be a sinner. And I even told him that. Then he had me read Matthew 5.28, For all those who look upon a woman to lust for her have committed adultery with her already in his heart. And as a Jew, I knew adultery was wrong. And Jesus said, you look upon a woman with lust for her, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart, and I didn't know how to look at a woman any other way. I was so addicted to pornography, I didn't know how to look at a woman any other way. And I was convicted of my sin. Then I realized that I was a sinner. I was sharing with a man, he was in his 70s, and I was going through the gospel with him, and and he just couldn't connect that he was a sinner. And I showed him where the Bible says that that uh, all liars will enter the fire. I said, does that include you? He says, well, I haven't told any big liars. I said, but it says all liars. It doesn't say big liars only. It means all liars. Big liars, little liars, you're going in the fire. 
That's where you are going. And then he got saved. For years, his barrier was he felt he was pretty good. This is for the ungodly. What we have is a faith for the ungodly. And that's why when I start sharing the gospel, I put the parameters that we are all sinners. Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. And some may argue with Paul, well, maybe, maybe this is, uh, this is, there's, there's something else here that, that's, uh, uh, there's something else going on here, but Paul is just going to put every bit of this to rest. It is not based on works, it is based on faith. <clears throat> I want to turn to Romans, Romans chapter 9, the same book, just flip over a few pages to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, reading from verse 30. <clears throat> and in this verse, he is going to contrast the Gentiles versus Jews. The Jews were working for their righteousness through the law. And here's what he says. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. What then shall we say? What shall we say then? So he's saying, here's the summary. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attain righteousness, even the righteousness which is according to faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. So he's saying Gentiles, they weren't trying to attain righteousness by any any acts. They just took hold of it by faith. But to the Jews, he said, <clears throat> Israel's pursuing this law of righteousness, but they missed it. They didn't arrive at the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. Because it tells us in James chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, James chapter 2, you may say, well, of the 613 commandments, what if they just disobeyed one? <clears throat> one day, they disobeyed one. That's enough to condemn them. How do I know? James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. You break one law. You're done. You're toast. That's it. And he says here in Romans, he says that you just couldn't do it. And he says they were trying to get at this through their own righteousness. And I have many Orthodox Jewish friends. And when I talk to them, it's very much about all that they do. They go to the synagogue on certain days and they light certain candles and they say certain prayers and they do certain acts all trying to somehow attain righteousness. And then it says in verse 32 of Romans chapter 9, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. What's a stumbling stone? 
It's a stone that's right in front of your face. It's like you're standing there and you don't realize that right, like one nanometer in front of your right foot is a stone sitting there. You're just looking around up here and then you just take one step, poof, that's a stumbling stone. It's right in your face. He says, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Well, what's the stumbling stone? Verse 33, just as it is written, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. God put in front of them the stumbling stone. He who believes in him. He personalizes this stone. He says, this is Jesus right in front of their face. This Jesus is sitting in front of their face. This Jesus is right in front of them. And they stumble over this Jesus. He's right in front of them. He's right there. Jesus is right there. John chapter 5 verse 39. John chapter 5 verse 39 says... You search the scriptures. Jesus is speaking to the Jewish people. There was no New Testament when Jesus is saying this. He's speaking about the Old Testament. You search the scriptures. You don't just read them. You search the scriptures. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, Jesus said. It is these that testify about me. But you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. The scriptures bear witness of Jesus. The Old Testament bears witness of Jesus. He's a stumbling stone right in front of their face. And I'll tell you this right now. This is not just a problem for Jewish people. This is a problem for Gentiles. And particularly Gentiles that grow up in homes that are religiously Christian. Religiously Christian, but with no real life. Who think, well, you know, I... You know, in, 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 in my home, you know, you know my, my grandmother went to church. You know, church was a very important thing in my culture. It is in many people's homes. But you know what happens? They stumble over the same same stumbling stone. They think that because they grew up in that sort of setting, in that sort of culture, in that sort of environment, where their family occasionally went to church, that they're now good to go. You're not! You're not good to go! Jesus is the stumbling stone right in front of you. What are you going to do with him? Will you confess that you are an ungodly sinner and there is salvation in Jesus and in Jesus only? Only in Jesus is there salvation. To the Jew and to the Gentile, there is no other way, no other way. Every time some Christian gets on Oprah, she loves to ask them, what's going to happen with all the people in the world that don't believe in Jesus? It's always, oh, well, you know, God works with them where they're at. I can tell you what's going to happen to them. They're going to hell. They're going to hell. That's what the Bible says. You don't like that? Take it up with God. I didn't write this book. There is no way unto the Father but through Jesus. And if a man or a woman in some culture far away from where the gospel is preached will but open up their hearts to the natural law that is around them and start responding as we have read about, then the witness of the gospel will come. It will come. That's why the man, the woman in middle America, who lives in some small town, 
has never been out of the country starts feeling a burden to go to Sudan or starts feeling some burden to go to northern Iraq. And you're like, what's in your mind? And the family's like, what's going on here? Why do you want to... You don't want to go in it. You don't have to do dangerous stuff. Just stay right here. And there's this burning passion. In, no, I have to go. I have to go. Because God is sending them to speak to that person who is responding to the light that's given them. The witness will come. This is not my explanation for the thing. This is God's explanation. We've seen this in this book. <clears throat> this is God's explanation. This is how it's done. Jew or Gentile, it is only through Jesus. And it is a dangerous thing to grow up into a home that is religiously Christian without a real faith in Christ. It is dangerous because you deceive yourself. You think that you have it. You think, I'm, I'm okay. I know about this. Look, I got baptized when I was an infant. I'm good to go. Baptism is just like circumcision. Baptism is a sign. It's a sign for what's going to come. And this is, this is what the scriptures talk about it. Just, just like circumcision, as, as we see in, in chapter, chapter four of Romans, chapter four of Romans, it's, it says, uh, um, in verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision and the seal of righteousness of faith. While he was, uh, uh, which he had while uncircumcised. So circumcision was the evidence of faith, not the creator of it. Baptism is the evidence of faith. It doesn't create faith in you. Sprinkling a bunch of water on you doesn't do anything for your faith. Baptism is a testimony of the faith that's already there. So just because your family baptized you when you're a baby, it doesn't do anything. You never see Jesus baptizing babies. There has to be an understanding of this. It is dangerous to think yourself good to go. It is Jesus who justifies the ungodly, not the godly. He justifies the ungodly. You may never have an appeal like this again. You may never have this. I urge you to come to Jesus today. To humble your heart and accept Him today. To give your heart to Jesus today. There's salvation only in Him. <clears throat> if you think yourself okay, you may have a stumbling block right in front of you. If you have never said, Father, forgive me because I am a sinner. Father, forgive me and come into my life. Thank you for dying for my sin. And I believe Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Then you're not saved. It's very clear. If you look in, in Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says, it says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you do not believe in the physical resurrection, you are not saved. You're not saved. But I can remedy that. Just talk to me. I can talk to you for 20 minutes and you will come around to believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is so much evidence on this. You give me 20 minutes and you'll be saved. So if you do not believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, come and see me. I'm here. I'm available. I will change my schedule around your schedule. That's how badly I want to share this with you.
And you may never have this opportunity again. You may never have it. And this is why I urge you, come to Him this day. Let's pray. Abba, my Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. You are good and righteous and holy in every way. I thank You, Lord, that You are the God who justifies the ungodly because of the sacrifice of Your Son. I thank You, Lord, that You call us to faith, not to works, but to faith. And then the works are the outworking of that faith. Lord, I thank You that justification comes through faith. Lord, I pray today, now, for the unbelievers who are here, that they, this very day, would say, Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me, because I am a sinner. I believe that Jesus is Lord, and I believe that He has risen from the dead. Jesus is Lord, and He has risen from the dead. Lord, I pray for the salvation of these precious ones. Save their souls, I pray. Save them in Jesus' name. Save their souls. And Lord, I pray for the believers that are here, that they would learn to take Your Word and love it, and tremble at Your Word, and to say, what do the Scriptures say? And they go back to it, and see, what do the Scriptures say? Father, I pray that they would tremble at Your Word, because it's to those ones that You will look, to the ones who tremble at Your Word. Give them a greater love for the Word of God. Jesus be glorified in our lives, I pray. May Jesus be glorified in our lives. Give us a greater fear for You and a trembling for the Word of God and that we would do what the Scriptures say. Have mercy on us, O Lord, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.